Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back or have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 106. As always, joined by the three amigos. We've got Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, Rich Diaz. What's going on, gentlemen? Keith? <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, it's the change of seasons, and uh, we're about to fall into autumn. Oh, good. Rich? Rich? Yeah. I got that one. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Rich? What's going on over there in the land of. Montreal. Um, not much, man. Easy, just a good day at uh, PGM Global. Just uh, writing notes. Having a, had a great client meeting today with one of my favorite clients from London. Um, he's watching inflation in London get really sticky and wages and all that. So I was going to talk about that a little bit later. I owe Steve an apology, um, which I'm going to give right now. Um, this is unscripted, and you guys don't know this, but yeah. So I, I think originally Steve was talking about the book, The Fourth Turning, or The Fourth Turning is Here. And I was rather dismissive about that. And I apologize unreservedly. I was wrong. I started reading the book. It's pretty cool. I get why you thought it was really interesting. And uh, yeah, I'll let you guys know how it goes as I continue to read it. But yeah, so my bad, Steve. Uh, I owe you one. So there you I'm go. I'm not going to lie. I don't I don't remember that at all, but I'll, I'll take your apology. <laughs> uh, well, hey, you Rich, know, by it, the way, it must was... be one of the it must be one of the few books you have yet to read, Rich. So oh, no, that, that's exciting <laughs> to hear. Yeah, I'm surprised you hadn't read, read that one. That's uh, you're behind the eight ball. I am behind the eight ball. No, no, there's loads of books I haven't read, but that one's really cool. And I think I was quite dismissive when you originally mentioned it, but that was a mistake. It's a, I get why you think it's cool and I'm really enjoying it. So yeah, there you go. I was, uh, I was in London, by the way, what a, what a great oh. spot. I can see all the hype. I get it now. Yeah. yeah I, cool. I, had a, I had a real pint, a full normal, real an pint. imperial pint, an imperial pint. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Okay. Just, it that, just that's tasted like, better. That's like 38 Budweiser, Steve. One English <laughs> pint is like 38. Budweiser. I'm, still, I'm still on team Budweiser, but um, we've got a pretty, uh, pretty jam-packed episode this week. Um, we've got a very, very special guest, uh, Mike Green, which I'll have Keith T up here in just a moment, but we've got Mike Green coming to the show. Uh, really going to get into his thoughts on the sort of global macro, how he's looking at it from like a, again, a bigger picture, not just a Canadian perspective, but uh, from a bigger picture perspective. But, you know, afterwards, you know, we've also got Canada's inflation, um, you know, Bank of Canada's business outlook survey, interest rates, bond market. I mean, there's just so, so much going on right now. So we're going to try to get through a lot of it. And this will be a jam-packed episode. But um, Keith, why don't you tee up our, our guest, Mike Green, uh, onto the show and, and why we want to bring him on board? Yeah, sure thing. So I met Mike a while back. And, uh, you know, those that are on Twitter know Mike as uh, at Professor Plum. So, you know, the, the the character from the Princess Bride, right? I think that's where the guy is from. Uh, anyway, Mike, you know, you, you get to hear Mike, you know, I'm an incredibly smart guy uh, with a bit of a sense of, of humor with it as well, which is great in, in our world. But specifically, a lot of people don't realize that Mike's background. So Mike has been around for 30 years. So maybe 
Steve and Rich's career combined in terms of time, maybe. Uh, but Mike, it, Mike does a lot of research and different topics. His research has been presented to the U.S. Federal Reserve, the BIS, with you know, the Bank of International Settlements, with which Rich talks about every now and then. The IMF, uh, now he's going to be used on the loony hour. So, you know, you get the the four pillars. He's of finally, the he's finally making it. Yeah, He's making it big time. Uh, but his background, he's currently the uh, chief strategist, portfolio manager for Simplify ETFs. Uh, great firm. We, we they, they make really great products and, and tools and solutions. And, and we will use them when it makes sense for our portfolios as well. Prior to that, uh, he was a chief strategist at Logica as well. Prior to that, he uh, he actually managed Peter Thiel's uh, private capital. So Peter, uh, you know, he was involved with with launching PayPal a few years back. So Mike was out in Silicon Valley for a long time as well. And from an education perspective, Rich, you'll like this. He's a graduate from uh, University of Wharton, well, Wharton University from Pennsylvania. Very good. And he did the CFA Institute, you know, program, uh, which is... I'll ask him some questions on the ethics yeah, part. Yeah, <laughs> we're all proud of that. But this is Mike Green, guys. We're going to have a, a great conversation today. And I think what everyone will appreciate with, with Mike is that, no, Mike's not Canadian, but uh, he's going to be able to provide everyone today with and how Americans or non-Canadians can view Canada and what might be affecting us. Because that's a common theme that we try to introduce all the time. So we'll have uh, Mike coming on. All right, let's get him in here. Mike, welcome to the show. You uh, thanks, thanks for joining us. I see you got a very special jersey on. Yes, yes. I was really fortunate. I've actually came up. I'm actually in Montreal now. I came up to speak at a uh, BMO event yesterday. Uh, and decided to stick around and enjoy the sites. Just a couple of meetings and a couple of podcasts. Actually, interestingly enough, my, my calendar filled up with Canada in a totally unanticipated way while I'm actually in Montreal. So I figured I'd uh, you know embrace it, put on a fans uh, jersey, and uh, be be Canadian for the day. I love it. For those that don't have a uh, YouTube right now or listen to this, uh, he's got a Cole Caulfield jersey on. So um, there you go, Rich. Well, Mike, you are by far and away our best uh, interviewer, interviewee. <laughs> we can end it right here. And sir, you've set the bar, which is unreachable by anybody else. So thank you very much for joining us. I've heard a lot about you. And actually, my boss, Aidan Garib of PGM Global, he's actually presented to you several times, I believe. He has, yeah. Yeah. yeah so so Aidan's uh, really, really smart on the macro side. Somebody that I definitely appreciate his insight. Yeah, he's great. So speaking of, of smart, uh, so Mike, we gave you a very nice introduction there uh, b- before you came on, um, but not, you know, we described you as being a smart fella, but you, you're even smarter. So people don't realize this, but a couple of year, couple of weeks ago, I was out to the West Coast and I connected with Mike. I said, hey, let's get together and uh, do a talk, talk macro. So we go for a walk on the beach. To which Mike quickly replied back to me. He had no interest in holding my hand on the beach <laughs> and, and talking macro. So, uh, you know, I think that, that was not the, at all true. Move. That's not what I said. Well, I said, well, I love walk hand in hand on the beach in Northern California. Unfortunately, I've actually relocated out of California. So I decided to take advantage of my own advice, sell my home in California. Uh, and I'm actually kind of home right now. I'm uh, alongside my wife. Uh, we're enjoying empty nurses and just traveling around to Airbnbs in various locations around the United States for about a year. And then, uh, 
if the opportunity continues to present itself and I can keep my wife from going totally crazy, I'm actually trying to talk her into doing the same thing in Europe next year. So ha having spent far too much time traveling on my own um, for the past several years, I'm going to continue to try to take advantage of the, the change in technology and continue to contribute, manage portfolios remotely and do events like this wherever I happen to be. This time it just happens to be I'm around the corner from Rich Diaz. So cool. God, God's country. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Although we lost Kirby Doc, so I'm very, very sad. But anyway, that's a conversation for a different day. <laughs> so, um, Mike, speaking of technology, one of the first questions we wanted to ask you, we wanted to ask you about your uh, crypto portfolio. Uh, <laughs> if you can tell us all your holdings and how you're Absolutely. weighing them. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm heavy in FTT. I've got some <laughs> Solana. Uh, I, uh, I washed that down with a touch of Luna. And um, for stable coins, I really think that Terra is the place to go. So, yeah, Luna, if you hold it long enough, it might just come back. So it, it, it might, it might just go. come back. So uh, yes, yeah, that's my crypto portfolio. But it, in, but in, in all, all seriousness, I do actually have a small, a very small allocation to Ethereum. Okay, no, well, there you go. Breaking news. Um, but uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of your interviews in the past. Uh, you know, a huge amount of respect for for your insights. And uh, to be honest, I, you know. I've tended to agree with with a lot of of how you kind of view the world, and so one of the things I wanted to tee this conversation up with was, um, you know, it's actually a great tweet from Jim Bianco, which was on June twenty seventh of this year. Consensus had uh, Q three GDP at zero percent, so zero percent growth in in Q three. So here we are, a hundred days later, and consensus is now at three and a half percent GDP growth and the Atlanta Fed is at 5.4%. So like what's going on here? Like how is nothing broken? Is the data just lagging? Uh, what are we missing here? What is What has surprised you the most? Well, I, I think the quick answer is I would definitely have put myself into the camp that thought we'd be closer to zero, even if we weren't actually at zero. Um, and there is this divergence between what I would describe as survey-based data or secondary data and the official headline data. One of the challenges I would, would point out with things like Atlanta Fed GDP now is very heavily off of first reports relative to expectations. So the underlying dynamics of um, employment numbers expectations and then being revised lower doesn't affect the Atlanta Fed number. And so I think the five is a little bit ridiculous. So I, I think the key surprise or what um, should have been anticipated in Q3 is the rebuilding in the auto sector, effectively in preparation for the UAW strikes. We had a rebuild of inventory. We had a relative easing of supply, and it remains remarkable. I mean, most people have not fully focused on this, but for U.S. you know SAR numbers, for our, sale, our auto sales and production numbers to be down where they are, we're looking at like 15 million units compared to, you know, 25. Five years ago, we were running closer to 19 million units, right? So this has been a remarkable deceleration of the sector. There's been consolidation, limits on production. You've obviously heard GM through Marie, Mary Vera, et cetera. So all of that has contributed positively to what I think everyone would agree is a surprising, what looks like to be a surprising Q3 number. The other thing to remember, though, is that the U.S. is also an oil exporter. Right. And so a big chunk of the actual production growth, the improvement in GDP is through exports. The increases in the prices of those has improved the U.S. trade dynamics that's playing into the numbers that we're seeing. 
But in general, almost all the data we're seeing continues to suggest deceleration. And even as people are talking about things like the labor market remains strong, today's jobless numbers were low. If we actually look at the pattern of unemployment, we've now got a positive slope associated with the level of unemployment that typically only happens in recessionary conditions. So I think we're, despite the fact that we may get a strong print in Q3, we have to imagine that we're much closer to the end of this cycle than we were even you know 12 months ago when i would argue that a lot of the recessionary signs were you know sidestepped by the dramatic decline in oil prices from very high levels to merely high levels that meant that the oil sector was not short-circuited but the u.s consumer received an extraordinary amount of relief that in turn showed up in everything ranging from spending on down right so people will point to year-over-year -year changes in red book sales or retail sales. Just remember that that's happening against the direct aftermath of this, the Russian invasion of Ukraine that sent oil prices north of 100 bucks, dramatically constrained consumer spending. Now we've seen that relief come up, and, and you're actually seeing that in the direct year-over-year -year numbers. Those comparisons became very, very easy. So, so it's you kind of interesting because, you know, up here in Canada, you know, we're, we're starting to see some soft economic data as well and the feeling in canada well i guess maybe it's the feeling here on, on our podcast and we, we've been sort of you know waiting for you know the recession to start and it keeps getting pushed out a little bit further and one of the things you talk about is we always need to be aware of what's happening elsewhere around the world so i mean you know we just talked about the u.s a little bit are you seeing a similar slowdown in in data if you believe the data out of china for example the European experience and in other EMs. So, like, I guess though, Mike, can the US stabilize enough to hold everyone can else go up? On, right? Can we or do we all? Yeah. What do you yeah, think? No, I, um, so, I think that there's a number of things that a lot of people, you know, assess are unique to this cycle, but I don't think are actually unique. One of which is this this dynamic of decoupling, right? Can the US through onshoring, reshoring, friendshoring? moving investment away from China, moving into the United States, can we actually keep the investment stream going to the point that we spend the money? The relatively unique deterioration of the US fiscal position, the dramatic increase in our deficit, has that provided support to the economy? Has the increase in interest rates, so Warren Mosler, I know you're very familiar with this work, Keith, you know, has Warren Mosler's assertion that higher interest rates are ultimately stimulative because they drive additional money into the income stream for the private sector. You know, these are all questions and things that are playing through in the U.S. economy. And, and I think the irony is, of course, that all of them have elements of truth. Right. So Warren is 100 percent correct. I personally am directly experiencing this. I'm sure many of your clients are as well, where much higher interest rates simply mean that they're getting more on the cash that they're holding. Right. And, you know, again, fortunately, I sold my house. I'm now sitting without a mortgage. I'm now sitting with a relatively large amount of cash that's sitting in, a, you know, a bank account or really more accurately, a money market fund earning five plus percent. Right. Suddenly that takes away a lot of sting from did I capture the absolute peak of the market because that cash is suddenly earning real income for me. And I think that's true for a lot of people. So Mike, flip Mike, side what, Mike what, what's interesting, uh, what I just heard was you decided not to put your money on a bank's balance sheet. Instead, you put it in the money market world in, instead. Absolutely. Well, this is this is one of the great ironies, right? Because when we look at things like CPI in the United States, 
you know, Keith, as you know, I have been in the transitory inflation camp and would point out that a lot of the inflation numbers that we're seeing now are directly a byproduct of the way that we've constructed the measurement series, right? So the irony is, is one of the, one of the key contributors, because it's small but has changed so much, is the cost of banking services, right? Now, most people don't think about writing a check to their bank for fairly obvious reasons, because the bank is supposed to write checks to you, right? You're supposed to receive some form of interest compensation for it. And so the question of how much does banking services, how much do you pay for your banking services? That's actually a really interesting economic question. What is, what is the cost of those banking services? If they're offered free, you've been attracted in with a toaster or a $50 gift certificate or whatever yeah. to become a client of the bank, right? What is the cost of those services? So the answer in how it's calculated is that the spread between the risk-free rate and the rate that you're paid on your banking deposit is the imputed, the implicit cost of banking services. Well, when the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates very dramatically and banks are slow to respond because among other things, the banks that were that survived the you know small banking crisis that we had back in March, April, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank followed by the failure of First Republic, et cetera, they've, they're flushed with cash. JP Morgan's thrilled. They're basically like, oh, why do we need to pay any money to anyone? Because they're giving us cash hand over fist just to be safe, right? That actually shows up as like a 300% increase in the cost of banking services over the last year. Almost any component of a data series that goes up 300% is going to be a meaningful contributor to it. And so there's two one's called the imputed cost the other is called the market-based cost hopefully i'm not frozen i just got a signal that my connection is a little bit unstable but um when you when you have that when you separate those two if we look at the market-based measures and you think about like what's actually happening right now we're already well below two percent and i think most of us if we're honest like we'll go to the grocery store and we'll say boy these prices are still high they're not meaningfully higher than they were last year. In many situations, they're actually lower, right? Gasoline prices, largely stable on a year-over-year -year basis at this point. A lot of the costs that are still going up are going up strictly on a kind of trailing basis, right? So the cost of auto insurance is rising because the price of new cars and used cars had already risen. If you have a policy that has to replace your vehicle, well, guess what? If those prices go up, your next contractual re, you know, um, re-up on your insurance is going to be higher, right? But it's not telling you anything about what's happening today or what's going to happen a year from now. And it really looks like almost all those forces at this point are shifting deflationary. And then you take it a step further and you, you take something like the cost of banking services, not to keep harping on this or to keep harping on, on this as an emphasis, what happens when the Federal Reserve cuts interest rates eventually? Well, surprisingly, the cost of banking services are going to fall, right? And so we're actually going to create a feedback loop in the opposite direction once we begin to respond to this sort of stuff. And I would just highlight those types of, you know, quote unquote, interesting wrinkles as the antithesis of this argument that we've entered into this new sustained period of higher secular inflation. That could be true. There's definitely reasons for, you know, a war, for example, if we expand the war in the Middle East, if we expand uh, the war in Ukraine, like there's no question wars are inflationary, right? That may end up happening. If an invasion of Taiwan occurs, it causes a radical change in supply chains and likely causes prices to move significantly higher. 
But the underlying construction, when you talk about a place like China, for example, where I don't actually believe the numbers, the simple reality is they have shrinking population. A shrinking population, even if we want to imagine that the underlying story is the loss of supply of workers, China has rising unemployment amongst the young. Right? It's not It's not like they're actually facing a shortage of workers. They're facing a shortage of internal demand. And that's really kind of the underlying story that we're going to face all over the globe. Canada is a notable exception to that, right? You're importing people at an extraordinary rate. It led to roughly 3% growth in your population last year. That's a super inflationary position, right? Because if you don't add 3% housing, there'll be shortages, right? If you don't add 3% more cars, there'll be shortages, right? I mean, that, like we know this stuff. We actually know that that's how it has to work. And while an immigrant family may not be able to directly compete with um, the, the native Canadian in terms of income levels, et cetera, you know, there's only so many people that can be jammed into a single room apartment, right, before you actually start you know, spilling over. And by the way, if you put multiple people into the same place and they're all earning incomes, they're going to be charged more. And that's going to show up as inflationary. So all sorts so of Mike, interesting stuff. Sorry, Mike. Uh, yeah. yeah, Rich. Rich still lives with his mom, so he's not in the housing market yet. He's still looking around. Thank you for that, Keith. I also want to correct you, Mike. Not everybody in Canada knows that if you increase the population by three percent, that you will be it'll be inflationary. There are certain people uh, up the four, up the highway a little bit that will uh, haven't thought that through. But um, well, can I ask you just a question, so just up, on up that? Is, is Quebec City? Is that what you're? you're uh, no, I was going to say all, the more direction of Ottawa sorry uh, the direction of Ottawa yeah yeah no I, I listen this is the great irony of our time is is that we've been taught that an increase in population or an increase in labor force is deflationary and there is no evidence anywhere that says that's true it's just it's it's almost a ridiculous observation it's um I you know I hate to put it in these terms, but it does fit perfectly with Ottawa, right? It's basically a Marxist interpretation, because what you're actually saying is the base of all costs is labor. If there's a shortage of labor, then the cost of labor is going to be higher than the cost of all goods that are produced are going to end up being higher. One, that's just silly. It doesn't actually work that way. The labor content is very, very low in most situations in modern production particularly when you think about something like basic commodities, right? The actual labor content in harvested Canadian red wheat is basically zero, right? Um, so when you, when you start thinking about those sorts of things, it makes absolutely no sense. But the really critical thing for people to understand about labor is labor is literally by definition, somebody saying, I want to consume more, Right. If they didn't want to consume more, they would stay on their sofa because a sofa is far more relaxing and enjoyable than work. Right. When they decide to participate in the labor force, when they decide to enter the labor force, they are explicitly saying, I want to consume more. I want more. Right. Um, let's just move. It's sort of interesting because, uh, you know, a common theme that everyone is talking about these days and it was social media and podcasts and everywhere else is that. When we're listening to the policymakers who get, you know, FaceTime, newspaper time, TV time and everything, and you listen to them closely and you, you think to yourself, wow, they, they don't 
sound very smart. They don't actually <laughs> seem like they know what, what's going on. So it, so what it does, and it still is not a lot of, we, it makes us have not a lot of confidence in policymakers, not just in Canada, but in America and in Europe, especially and whatever. So we hear that, but obviously there has to be someone else behind the scenes. So why don't you just give us your, your thoughts on behind the scenes at, at the Fed or, or the Treasury? Because it seems like, you know, whatever the Fed is doing, it's not enough to offset what the Treasury is doing. They're clearly not on the same team, things like that. But do, do you understand that the gist of the question in, in terms of? Yeah, no, I, I, I do. And um, so one, uh, for those of you who do follow me and know, like my character, my avatar on Twitter is Vicini, the you know, smartest man in the world from the Princess Bride who dies in a, you know, a battle of wits, right? Because he doesn't actually understand the game. And, and there's a reason why I have that as my avatar, because I find it important to remember, man, I may not actually know what the right question is. I may not understand that when it's, you know, guess which chalice has, has the iocane powder, it's in both. And my opponent immune to iocane powder, and I didn't know that, right? So I always want to be cautious in calling somebody else stupid or that they don't understand the problem, et cetera, because maybe I'm the person who doesn't actually understand the rules of the game. So I just want to start with that. I think that's actually really important. Now, with that said, that degree of humility, false or otherwise, is not at all present in politicians, right? So in particular, I think we're in a really interesting situation where Jerome Powell has actually told us in press, you know, in press conferences I think it's kind of cute and precious that the staff has their own force, right? But those don't have to be ours, right? So they have 4,000 PhDs on staff who are trying to tell them, here's what we think is going on. And in Powell's mind, because they spoke transitory on inflation, they're discredited and he doesn't want to hear what they have to say anymore, right? So basically, we have an individual who is behaving in an autocratic fashion who wants to replay the story right wants to be the guy who's so and conquers inflation and the irony and and keith i know you and i have talked about this and you've probably heard me highlight these dynamics but like i think paul volcker was the worst central banker we ever had and i'm sure (laughs) you know in the united states (laughs) and i know that everybody in the audience is like oh no wonder that guy's wearing a canadian's jersey right um if he knew anything he'd be following the maple leaves no how dare you shame on you (laughs) i'm I'm joking but the um the you know what happened in the 1970s was all about the dynamics of population growth exactly what you're we're talking about with canada so the really unique feature of the 1970s was not what we called stagflation right stagnation and inflation it was extraordinary growth in the united states and in canada the 1970s, not in Canada, because your population growth has, has been so high since then. But in the 1970s, in the United States, we had more job growth with 150 million population than we've had in any decade since. Right? There were more jobs created in the 1970s than were created in the 1990s or the 2000s. Right? I mean, those are extraordinary realities. More homes were built, more cars Right. We had just a really radical change in the construction of our population as the baby boomers came of age and as women entered the traditional labor force, competing for jobs, competing for homes, competing for opportunities, buying cars, etc. All of that played out in the 1980s and shifted outward the aggregate demand. Exactly as we're talking about now, Paul Volcker hiked up interest rates, and actually Arthur Burns for him, right, hiked up interest rates, 
and basically shut off the supply side of the equation. And so, you know, when you're looking at Canada right now, what you're looking at, and this is true in the United States, it's all just a hard stop to many of the dynamics of construction, et cetera, so that we know what the next step is. It's likely to be more shortages, right? We've disrupted the supply chain yet again. We're failing to make the investments that are required to allow living standards to to rise. And Canada, I would argue, is actually doing something even a little bit scarier than what the United States is doing, right? So the United States, which also has symptoms of relatively aggressive uh, importation of workers, low-skill workers um, under the Biden administration, this is not necessarily a criticism, I just want to state, state the fact, we've seen a tremendous increase in immigration in the United States. And in fact, Post-pandemic, almost all of the net job growth, the, the aggregate growth has occurred amongst the immigrant population as compared to the native population. Again, I think immigration is on net positive, but I think we have to be honest about what's going on, right? And so when, when we start thinking about those underlying types of dynamics, well, when those people come in, they're going to need new houses, they're going to need new cars, they're going to need all these things that we've now decided the key to solving our inflation problem is let's make less cars, let's make less houses, let's destroy the demand side of the equation, at least on a temporary basis. And so what I really think we've done is interjected volatility into a system that was stable, right? We talked about the great moderation. We changed a lot of our data systems to reflect that great moderation so that any one piece of information that came in would not lead to you know, an overreaction in policymaker circles. When you shut down the world and reopen it for the first time in history, you know, effectively akin to um, global war, right? A world war on a virus this time, right? shutting it down and then reopening it all back up, like causes volatility. And our systems are just poorly set up to react to volatility, both on the top side and inflation and now I would argue on the downside. I think that's a really good point because I can tell you, obviously, on the on the housing front, you know, we definitely have killed the demand side, um, but the supply side is now reacting, which is developers are are shelving new housing starts, permits, et cetera, because projects are no longer economically viable. Um, and so I'd imagine that's similar in the U.S. I know if U.S. fixed mortgage rates just hit eight uh, percent. Yep. I would I'd imagine that's going to be a bit of a train wreck over there. What are you seeing on that side? Well, I, I will tell you, I bought my first house at a seven and seven eighths mortgage, right? So it's a full round trip to now see them back over 8% for the first time. But the flip side of that is that first house that I bought, I actually went back and I looked at it on Zillow and it's not on the market currently because there's not much that's actually on the market. That's one of the reasons prices remain elevated. That home is worth almost three times what I paid for it or you know, valued according to Zillow at almost three times. And so Somebody buying the exact same house today versus, you know, when I bought it is going to pay roughly three times as much at the same level of interest rates. That doesn't whatsoever, right? Incomes aren't up through yes. The quality of that house has not improved yet. The population in that area has not increased by anything close to redux. Right. So why have the prices done this? I mean, the simple answer is that we engage in exactly, you know, another variant of what Powell is in the process of doing now. We've constantly restricted supply. We're just undersupplied in these things. 
And, it, it, you know, I think it's really important for people to actually understand that. And people point to, you know, kind of silly metrics like the average age of a house and all that sort of stuff. You know, like just remember that the average age of a house is always going to be going up as long as, you know, we're, you know, surviving as a species, right? Um, you know, there are people still living 14th century homes in uh, Venice, Italy, right? What's the average age of a house in Venice, Italy? I guarantee you it's more than the 16 years that it is in the United States. Yeah. Um, can you touch, um, can you touch on a little bit on, um, much for, familiar with, Chris, uh, I think his name is Chris Whalen. I think he's like a, he's pretty good. He's yeah. got a great blog and he talks a lot about sort of um, the losses on bank balance sheets. Can you just touch a little bit on that? And and if you think it's a big deal or not a big deal and, and, um, and maybe if you have any views on Canadian banking, cause I know it's obviously not your purview, but I mean, they're underperforming. They're starting to fire some employees. And, you know, I was just curious about your thoughts on that. Creating visual content is an essential part of what I do, but the creative process hasn't always been easy. That is, until we discovered Canva. The Looney Hour uses Canva to create images for our podcast thumbnails and signage for our live events. Designing custom artwork using Canva is so easy, even the boomer can do it. Canva for Teams is a design platform that makes it easy for anyone to create stunning content in any format, from social media posts to videos, presentations, and websites. Ever since I found Canva for Teams, it's been easy to collaborate and design with the team, which makes the whole process so much more creative and fun. We've also used Canva to collab with our marketing team around the world to design cover art for our podcast. It's super easy to drag and drop logos and create professional-looking content using Canva for Teams. Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash That's canva.me slash for a free 45-day extended trial. Canva.me slash Looneyar. Well, so I, I will be very straightforward that I'm not an expert in Canadian banks. And so I probably <laughs> that. On the flip side of that, I do talk to Chris actually um, uh, on, a, on a fairly regular basis. We're actually trying to collaborate on a few things. Um, I think both Chris and I would actually say that the bank balance sheets themselves are probably reasonably well capitalized, right? In aggregate, that's certainly true. JP Morgan appears to be extraordinarily well capitalized capitalized and, as in clean sorry to interrupt you just so people understand so they're 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 healthy yeah they're they're they have adequate capital ratios to withstand adverse events i don't think that they've fully reserved right i think they will see that their reserves prove to be inadequate that leads to negative earnings dynamics but the simple reality is is that they're very well positioned to handle that Right. Certainly, if I add up the aggregate market cap, we have nothing that looks like the global financial crisis in terms of the major banks themselves. They're they're in a much better shape um, on the regional side. That's been more challenging, right, in part because they've had to work harder to attract and retain deposit bases as compared to the super safe JP Morgans, et cetera, of the world. Right. So they have less stable deposit bases as Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank found out to their you know, chagrin and unfortunate and untimely passing. Um, but the really key thing in the banking system is simply that because it has been wounded and because it is now facing the inability to get incremental demand into the books for loans, right? Their, their in assets, their income generating assets, what we call loans, are not resetting in a manner to expect. Right. So you can raise interest rates and banks will be fine. In many ways, they'll be more profitable if they're able to write new books of business or yields. 
but we're just not actually seeing that, right? We're not seeing their ability for the very simple reason that many of the businesses that had find themselves in the period from give or take 2013 to the period of 2022 just can't afford higher interest rates, right? I mean, we see this explicitly in uh, market indices like the high yield benchmarks where just no new issuance is coming. Right. And you see this in the senior loan officer surveys where the willingness to lend at current rates and at current spreads is remarkably low. They're all tightening up their conditions, though the economy is operating relatively well. And and I think that it's very clear, like the irony of credit cycles is if I don't re-extend credit to you, then you're going to credit issue. Right, because you can't repay the the loan that you took out in almost all situations unless you're able to take out another loan. Very rare to have a fully amortizing loan, you know, over the course of five years. They're almost all some variant of balloon, you know, the equivalent balloon mortgages where you need to refinance it at the end. Um, so, like, I, I just think the 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 one that the people are talking about in the banking system, and Chris has certainly hit on this. Um, Albert Edwards, some components of this, others have highlighted it. There's just a, you know, what what we treat as a homogenous market where we talk about the aggregate interest payments, right, or the aggregate net interest payments. And then we note that because of higher interest rates, that many corporations are earning very attractive yields on their cash balances. And so net interest rate is falling. That's actually extraordinarily misleading because it makes no difference it, you know, imagine my bank account and Bill Gates's bank account, right? If we treat the two as one, if we aggregate them together, then it's this fantastically large cash balance that is earning this unbelievable amount of income and has basically no borrowings. Now, I'm a bad example because I closed out my mortgage, but, you know, the reality is, is that Bill Gates part of that has almost no impact whatsoever, you know, even though it shows up as the overwhelming component, because if I run into trouble, Bill's not going to bail me out, right? There's no benefit in that. And so the same thing is happening where Apple has a ton of cash, but Carnival Cruise Lines does not, right? Lots of levered companies are basically in a situation where they're getting pretty close to having to turn off the lights in one form or another in a debt restructuring. And we actually see this, the levels of banks amongst companies with $50 million more is already above the level that was in 2008 prior to Lehman, right? We're seeing a dramatic deterioration, a dramatic increase in bankruptcy. It's just not reflected in market pricing yet. Mike, we want to be respectful of your time, but I guess to kind of wrap this up, the one question I have is what's keeping you up at night? Like what's the one thing that you're looking at moving forward that you're kind of keeping a close eye on and saying, okay, this, this is, this is going to be important to watch moving forward. Well, look, the, the the thing that keeps me up in the simplest form is, is that most people don't have thoughtful financial advisors like you guys, right? The, the real, and, and I don't mean necessarily to reflect, you know, flattery towards you for having me on the program. Um, you know, what I'm really actually referring to is people who can actually think thoughtfully about how conditions change. And so the majority of assets in the United States, and certainly the vast majority in terms of the marginal assets coming into the market, are governed under strategies like target date funds, model portfolios. And I think it's really important to understand that those models 
are built on back tests that don't have an element of conditionality to them, right? A target date fund remains an allocation to bonds and equities based on a percentage um, holding level tied to the expected age at which you retire. None of them have, you know, multiple possible glide paths, right? They all have a single glide path. How old are you? Nowhere in that glide path does it say, are interest rates 0% or are interest rates 100%, right? If interest rates were 100%, I have fairly high confidence that all of you guys would be saying to your clients or investors or to your listeners, go buy bonds, right? 100% yields, you know, inflation is running 2.5%. Congratulations, 97.5% real yield. This is going to be down in history. is the greatest opportunity in the history of mankind. And candidly, I don't care about anything else. Right. Like, I don't think any of you would hesitate to say that perfectly something like a target date fund or a model portfolio that maintains an end because you're supposed to balance across the indigenous return to each of the individual asset classes can't make that adjustment. And so you end up with really perverse dynamics where, you know, we're supposed to think that equity prices are supposed to go down a lot when interest rates rise a lot. But they haven't done that. Why? Because nobody gave a memo to the target date funds. Nobody actually said, change your allocations when you see these sorts of radical opportunity shifts. I mean, it's, I, I said this over and over again on podcasts, but I'll just reemphasize since this is a different audience, far more polite and, you know, much nicer than most of the audiences I deal with in the United States. Um, they also don't give me hockey jerseys to wear, but, um, which I'm glad for because it's a little chilly and now I'm nice and warm, but, um, the uh, you know the the really simple thing that you guys just like have to remember is we've gone from real yields, right, of roughly negative percent to real yields of between two and a half and three percent. We've gone from lowest levels, you know, in kind of observable history on real rates to levels that are around the eighty fifth versus history. Nobody's changed their allocations. Like that's crazy when you actually stop and think about it. The opportunity has shifted so dramatically and almost nobody wants to change. You know, I know that Keith is active on Twitter. I don't know about the rest of you guys as much, but like it, I appreciated you putting out the, the, the question lists. Um, and I thought people asked a number of great questions in that, but the, you know, the simple reality is, is you go onto to Twitter and you ask people like, well, bonds versus equities, and they'll tell you the S&P 500 is so much than bonds, right? That's, oh, no, did I freeze? No, no, it's okay. You said, sorry, it's so much okay. safer than bonds. Is that what you said? Sorry? Yes. No, people people will actually say, I think investments are so much safer than bonds. And like, that just strikes me as crazy because what you're actually dealing with, the thing to remember is it's not about, you know, the difference between fixed income and equities is not so much about fiat versus non-fiat, it's all fiat, right? I mean, the S&P 500 is valued in paying you in fiat terms. And I got really bad news for you. Before the US government goes bankrupt, they raise corporate taxes a lot, right? So like, just don't kid yourself. We've been through these cycles before. I'm sure all of you have dealt with, you know, individuals um, like Russell Napier, who used terms like um, uh, financial financial repression includes taxing the hell out of people in your country, right? Like, just don't be about this stuff. But when you when you have the difference between fixed income and equities, fixed income 
has the unique characteristic of its point of maximum certainty is at the end. Right? Now that, that actually is a little bit hard to imagine, but you know, think of the payoff function to equities. There are a widening cone of possibilities that includes it goes to zero and not quite infinity, but something kind of close, right? So it's this widening cone of possibilities that hits maximum uncertainty at its term value. Where it is ultimately bankrupt or does it become the world's most valuable company? Large spread between those two, right? A good quality, high quality fixed income bond has the unique characteristic of looking like an upward sloping American football. The point of maximum certainty is actually at its maturity point. You know it's going to be worth par, right? So, you know, when you think about those two instruments, they actually, you can't create a scenario in which the one with the maximum uncertainty at terminal value is safer and you have better knowledge of how it's going to behave than the fixed income portion of the portfolio. And that's what I think people are forgetting. I just think that people are forgetting that they both belong in portfolios and when the opportunity set shifts so much for that certain value, you should be overweighting certainty versus uncertainty. And that seems like a pretty straightforward message in this environment, but it's one that nobody's, nobody's seen, you know, very few people seem capable of one absorbing and two executing against. I think that's a great way to end this, Will. I think the other message that our listeners are going to hear I think you did suggest that we uh, Canadians, in terms of we, we, we do some uh, protesting and riding on, on the tax side of, of things up here. So if that ever happens, Mike, you will be on the, the poster board for everyone in Canada. I'll, I'll, I'll be wearing a Canadian jersey and a, and a poster board strapped to a hockey stick. <laughs> Joining you in, with, with excitement. Go Habs, uh, go. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Thanks, this was Mike. outstanding. I, I love the conversation today. Thank you for from everyone for joining us and uh, enjoy your stay there in Montreal. And you know, uh, if, if you're interested later, Rich can show you the nightlife because he's he's pretty good at that stuff. That was a great interview with Mike. There, you know, um, it's a shame that he uh, was staying at the Holiday Inn there with his with his <laughs> Wi-Fi connection. But we'll have to get him a, a loony hour free comp next time at the uh, at the Four Seasons. I think it's great though. Like Montreal is now like two of the smartest people around in the city at the same time with, with Mike and Rich. Yeah, thanks. Don't yeah. leave my uh, don't was, leave my sister out. <laughs> that was awesome. I think you know. I think he brought up you know a lot a lot of really good points. Um, I think he's chatted a lot about the the the, the macro and 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 the outlook there. So switching gears over to the Canadian side here, Rich. Uh, we had quite a bit of data over the last four or five days uh obviously inflation in canada that came in i think slightly below expectations so we've had sort of this reacceleration from 2.8 back to four now i think we're back down to 3.8 that's right on a headline um you kind of dig through the numbers there rich yeah, so it was it was a good one and a bad one. It was I'm la- I'm smiling because I'm laughing. I mean, there was some stuff that we're gonna get to in a second, but yeah, just to quickly cover. I mean, I I always tell people to look at sort of the the those preferred measures of core inflation, which the Bank of Canada ignored, um, and those have actually come down. So that's good. The trimmed mean CP, uh, CPI, so that's core, excluding sort of the um, the ones on the edges. So that's down to three point seven. So that's good. The median CPI, so that's like the middle central tendency when you line up all the different items together. 
Um, you know, that's fell, fell to 3.8. But stuff that really stood out, which is, again, we touched on it or Mike touched on it slightly, which was um, what happens when you increase your population with no plan as to improve the housing stock. And that's rent. And rent um, jumped up to almost 7%, depending on sort of which one you calculate, whether it's seasonally adjusted or non-seasonally adjusted. Um, and it's and it's and it's basically a direct function of that. Um, the other stuff that, of course, we talked about before is the mortgage interest component. Um, so that's yeah, that's jumped up a lot. I'm just trying to quickly get it. Yeah. So you have the you know food is zero point six. Um, so that was a significant amount. Um, the other stuff, but really it's just the rent component that just is basically going vertical at this point. It's the highest um, on record. I'm not sure how far the series goes back. I think back to the 70s or whatever. I mean, that's just sort of an incredible number um, at this juncture. And um, so let me just pull it up here. Yeah. And so and the other stuff is like, so core also is at 3.3. So still well above, um, well, still slightly above the bands. Remember in Canada, the target is like 1%, sorry, 2% with a 1% um, above and 1% below. I think that that, that, rent, that rent number is going to really just continue to put the bonus on the Central Bank of Canada. And they can talk all they want about how it's falling how inflation's falling and you know the price the cuts can get priced back in but if that rent number which flows into the shelter component which is a lion's share of your cpi continues to again it's accelerating it's not even it's not even starting to slow down on year on year basis i think that that it continues to put pressure on the central bank canada, bank of canada to at least uh, hold rates here long way longer than what's priced in and maybe even you know get a, a hike priced back in so, Keith, um, did you have anything to add on that, or can we move well, on yeah, to the other one? Yeah, I'm kind of looking at it from a the opposite perspective. Okay. Yeah, I mean, from a market perspective, um, no matter which data point we we look at here, it was either lower than the previous month, fair, right? As it's from a you know an aggregate perspective, or and it was even less than estimates. So th this was a, a from a market perspective, this was an extremely dovish. CPI print, um, and, you know, a bit can like they'll look through it and you know look at the well. I would hope they would look through all the data like that you do, Rich, and try <laughs> to figure out what they should be doing or not. But as soon as this data point came out, uh, it, by the way, it came out the exact same time as the Americans released their retail sales, which was very strong. So uh, you know, it's a bit of a double whammy. So the Canadian data was deemed to be soft, and the American data was deemed to be really hard. But the Canadian dollar didn't. Steve, you ready for it? It got mullered that day. You know, it came down really hard. So, uh, so I see it as you know, there is more evidence here that perhaps the Bank of Canada that they've already stopped hiking. You know, they're they're done. But as we know, though, you know, the Bank of Canada as well as the the random number generator for the out for the employment number. Um, you don't really know what they're going to do, but from the again from a pure investment perspective, uh, the Canadian CPI number was, was deemed to be soft. So um, that's, that's that, the way that yeah on that side it. too. Um, kind of to to Mike's earlier conversation was the two largest contributors to CPI was of course mortgage interest costs up thirty percent and uh, rent rent inflation, uh, which is still running high. Again, when you you know, pull in a million people a year into the country um, and you don't have enough housing, it is inflationary. And obviously shelter, Rich, as you know, makes up a, a the biggest chunk of the CPI basket. So 
uh, sort of a self-inflicted own goal, so to speak. Um, but on it's the, just, uh, it's just, sorry, ahead. one more thing. It's just, it's just, it's to me, it's just, it's one of those things that really bugs me. Sorry, rant time, because this was like eminently predictable. You've talked about so much about this, the housing stock and not enough being built. You know, let's compare it. We, we always talk about the G7 and how useful comparison that is. Um, you know, per capita home building is at the lowest in the G7. And um, I think that that rent component is going to continue to really squeeze low income families that are not protected by owning their home asset, their assets. It's certainly outpacing wage growth at this point, right? Even if you're generous and you say wage growth is at 5%, which again, that's not for everybody, but I guess some people are getting that. Um, to have rent be, you know, six and seven and whatever it is to that's it's really really going to continue to hurt um and so maybe keith's right it's going to you know slow the further slow down the consumer and add pressure like that but anyway yeah we'll see how that shapes up i think there was another big announcement uh this week well kind of from osfi uh so it's the Canadian banking regulator they do their annual sort of like review of the financial system um so there was a lot of talk coming into this because they were they basically put out um a lot of proposed sort of policy changes um to various people in the industry and they get their feedback from them. And uh, apparently there's there, there was sort of an internal heated discussion between OSFI and, and uh, you know, Krista Freeland there. Um, OSFI ultimately wanted to tighten credit further. And uh, I think that the feds were kind of like, you know, <laughs> maybe time to ease off. They got an election not too far. Out. <laughs> and yeah. um, so OS, OSFI left everything status quo. So no changes whatsoever. They were talking about, um, you know, having to hold more capital against these variable rate mortgages. They were talking about bringing in um, new debt to income ratios as well. And so literally no changes at all. So I think. But that has to be disappointing, don't you think? I mean, when you hear Ottawa getting involved like that for pure political reasons from what i'm hearing yeah this is kind of internal speculation from people that i i know that are very you know quite well connected um that's that was sort of that's but but that's the behind the curtain reaction that we would expect anyway but again it's it's rich will tell you you get disappointed in life every now and then (laughs) right yeah but it it is disappointing to to hear that so what i think there are though like well, I just in terms of like, you know, tightening credit further, I'd argue like I think the damage is done. You just kind of have to let the poison sort of sink in. Um, so I can see like the rationale for not tightening credit further at this stage of the cycle. Um, there's actually a really good research piece put out from CIBC's uh, economics team this week, which, you know, we've talked about on the show, um, you know, something like as of. You know, coming up here, about 70,000 mortgages are renewing every single month. Uh, and obviously, they're renewing at significantly higher mortgage rates. Um, so as of right now, by the end of this year, end of 2023, um, less than 50% of mortgage borrowers in Canada, so anyone that owns a, has a mortgage in Canada, uh, less than 50% of the mortgages outstanding will have seen a payment increase by the end of this year. And that by the end of 2024, that number rises to just over 60, 65%. So there's still like a lot more tightening coming through the pipeline. Yeah, that's right. It's just, it just hasn't really hit. Right. So, um, and you I think about Rich, that, right? Rich, like, that kind of ties in with a, some a chart that you shared with us a couple of days ago about, I think you showed us, uh, 
sovereign debt maturities coming due over oh yeah that's right five you want to share with everyone yeah i can what, pull what that up that? so yeah sure i can pull if you just give me half a second i can pull it up right now so yeah, so you know we've talked about this before. We, I think we referenced the Italian uh, bonds, which is I think the third or fourth largest uh, bond issuer in the world, and how um, how they're going to have to roll over an incredible amount of debt in the near term. And Canada's in a similar situation. So naturally, each debt that Canadian uh, or any government, excuse me, issues may or may not have a different maturity. You know, one year, five year, the Austrians did a hundred years at eighty five basis points. Good kudos to them. And Canada sort of did the exact opposite. And as a function of that, um, the weighted average maturity of their bond, uh, their owings has come down. And in 2024, Canada is going to have to roll over about 300, let's just say, let's be generous, $350 billion of debt in 2024. And so right now, their average fixed coupon is 2.15%. I know it with that kind of clarity because all this data is... I wouldn't say necessarily publicly available, but it's on the Bloomberg. So you can look it up yourself if you'd like. And we're going to have to roll over $350 billion. And what's the five-year bond yield, Steve, right now? We're at 4.4% right now. Yeah. So let's, you know, so basically we're going to double the coupon effectively, right? Let's just say if we can do a quick math on all this debt. And that's going to hurt as hard as, you know, interest payments, which are starting to rise significantly. Um, and and yeah, it's just it's it's, it's not going to be fun, kids. Um, and that just means, you know, less spending on different services going forward. Somebody somewhere is going to have to pay for this. And it's not clear that as an investor, you'd want to purchase that paper if more if, if inflation is really high and you're not getting a real yield, although right now real yields. So it'll probably be like an additional 20 billion yeah I, cost, oh, I, right? yeah I guess if so. they were yeah. at two now they're going to jump up to four or something yeah so I mean the weighted anyway. average fixed coupon is two and two and a bit so it won't exactly double because they're still owing it gets more complicated than that but it'll definitely jump quite a bit especially over the next few years it has to right you have you know what is it 300 plus another 200 over the next three years you're you're re you're rolling over almost a trillion dollars in in federal government debt so if your interest rates are twice as much and that's yeah it's, it's a significant increase in your interest payments for it's just funny for the federal to see, government. like the sentiment shift uh you know remember like two years ago it was felt like money was free we, everyone was talking about mmt yeah. there was no <laughs> limit to, yeah there was no limit to like government deficits like the central bank could just fund them and like like you know stephanie kelton was like all the all the jazz everybody was talking about mmt and you know here we are today which is you know the, the, that that conversation thankfully is dead uh but we're now paying the price for all that free money it was always bullshit sorry to use the excuse the language it was always bogus it really was i mean i know we talked about it we talked about it mmt it you know, which is which is great for rich people and absolutely kills the the working class. Um, so does inflation. Mike's a bit more sanguine on inflation than I am, but the point is is that it's happened and it's here. And there's no way the wages are going to keep up, and the rents are up, and it's just it's really really going to hurt people who are on low sounds, incomes. It sounds like a job for central bank digital currencies <laughs> oh no please it'll fix say everything no to, if say no to central bank digital currency kids um, <laughs> to, to that point though just on the uh the economy and stuff you know 
businesses are going to have to start rolling over, obviously, higher debt loads as well. So the Bank of Canada just updated or released the latest uh, in their business outlook survey. Um, and so it's now basically businesses are, um, you know, consumer, their confidence levels um, is now at the lowest levels on record outside of the pandemic and the GFC. Um, so businesses are obviously quite pessimistic on the outlook. Uh, what's interesting from that report is that most businesses uh, believe that the, the impact of higher interest rates are just beginning. Um, and so it's it's quite interesting because they break down the survey. And so most businesses are saying that um, oh, close to 50% of them are saying that they feel interest rates are just beginning to impact their business. I was going to, I was going to just talk about the labor shortages, which I think is really cool. Um, so that's, and the inflation expectations, we've talked about that before as well. So the labor shortages persist, although they have really coming down. Um, so, you know, we talk about like, um, impact, like, yeah, so the ability to meet demand and how difficult and how difficult it is. That's the, that's the questioning when the, on the outlook, um, that's, and you know, you, you basically blame it on, um, you know, CapEx or foreign demand or, you know, availability, availability capital. And we're starting to see some softening on labor shortages, which I think is important. And in that survey also are inflation expectations, and they have started to come down naturally with the rest of inflation. So that I think that, that those are two positives. But yeah, Steve, I can't, I can't make a, I can't put lipstick on a pig. It's a really bad number. Keith? I got no. I mean, uh, he fell asleep. He fell asleep again. <laughs> well, it's it's in the afternoon now. So, uh, but Steve's comment about how companies are they're expressing that they've yet to really they're only now starting to see the effect of higher rates come through the economy i know we've been talking a while that it's been our expectation that we are going to go into a recession here in canada uh you know the other view is is you know is there as well but maybe that this is you know it's just been delayed that's that's all it's been so, um, hey, it's still expensive out there. People talk about inflation coming down. We could take away curry a couple of nights ago, guys. Normally, it's it probably costs us $80, you know, to get it in for the family. It's now 120 bucks. Yeah. It's expensive stuff, right? Like it's, and no matter why it's more expensive, obviously rates are feeding into it, but it, it just pulls down the economy. That's that's where we're going. I think the it. federal government should create a committee that could cap the prices of curries in Canada. How what do you how do you feel about that, Keith? They they should get all the uh, the curry houses together and right. tell them how they shouldn't be raising prices and, that's and right. stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, by the way, I don't know if you saw the Bank of Canada is blaming uh, the media for oh, stoking. Yeah inflationary food prices rich i don't know if you want to chime in there no i just want to take a victory lap it's one for us it's our fault we are the cause of inflation expectations rising in canada and frankly i'm quite flattered um so thank you bank of canada yeah, for so, blaming so those us. that missed it bank of canada put out a report basically saying that uh they believe that like a lot of the inflationary pressures pressures in, in the food market are are psychological and and have been sort of drummed up by the media so uh, what they, what, what's the expression for what's the expression for policymakers and governments that you know they never look in the mirror yeah it's an easy example here i mean come or, on i mean what about the, the loony gas- hour is not responsible for inflation in canada 
What about gaslighting, Keith? After years, after like maybe see almost a year and a half of telling everybody there was no inflation, now they're telling us, well, it's actually the loony hour and the fault that they're uh, it's just so anyways. maybe what should happen though, seriously, guys. I mean, let's let's just bring this back to reality. Because it is the media's fault for inflation going higher, maybe they should make a policy to regulate the media in Canada. And then that will cause prices to stop rising. Oh, See what boy. I mean? Yeah. Don't give me any ideas, please. Sorry, it's already here. It's already here. That's not a tinfoil hat thing either. That's Bill C, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but speaking of which, we actually have the Bank of Canada next week. Uh, so next week's rate meeting, uh, I don't know what the odds are, but I imagine they're close to zero. Uh, for a Bank of Canada rate hike next week. So we'll be touching on that next week. Um, we've also got Powell uh, as of this recording. Of course, we're back here recording here on Thursday. Uh, Jerome Powell's out uh, on his press conference. So a um, couple couple quotes from him, but uh, he says, quote, it does not feel like policy is too tight and it's possible we are going into a more inflationary period, but it's hard to know. That's uh, so that's next a, week is a it's a live meeting. Do we need to bet on on this one? Oh uh, boy, I'm on, a, I'm, like a, a, I'm on a losing streak. I'm I think we're, streak. are we not all in the camp that it's not going to be a hike? I mean, it, I, to me, it feels like a shoe in. But if you guys want, yeah, to I'm I'm with no hike. I think they're staying flat. The only question is whether they would cut or not. In I don't think they're at that level yet. Rich, Rich. is the gambler. What are you going with, Rich? Uh. I'm I'm kind of all twinkied out, so I'm gonna just <laughs> <laughs> this yeah this okay. feels like so this... it's a non-event then so it's a non-event maybe we all eat Twinkies, um, not as important but the football score last week wait was before dead we get wrong to... we before I was dead well, wrong that one. before you get to the football score we have to talk about the banks remember you wanted to tell us about what's happening in the banks and how there's. Yeah, so very quickly, I think everyone is aware now. Uh, yesterday, I think it was the Scotia Bank announced yeah. yesterday. So the Scotia Bank announced layoffs yesterday, and what was one of the main reasons they attributed to Rich? <laughs> <laughs> they lent uh, more than half a billion dollars. Um, yeah, well, they lent a base an incredible amount of money to a Chinese bank. Basically, it's not clear exactly how much it was, but. And, and they're taking a huge hit on their earnings as a function of that. So, so the panda oh, just went into the Scotia Bank room That's and right. like knocked the shit out of it. That's <laughs> gone. Um, RBC also planning cuts and Desjardins was out this week as well. Yeah. So, so that's three. So again, that's interesting because, you know, like banks, you know, they're, they're incredibly, well, most banks are incredibly well-run businesses. And uh, I think the Canadians are, are in that, are in that room. Absolutely. And, you know, they don't like to lose money. So they'll, they'll you know, they're starting to tighten their belts. They do it by, you know, reducing headcount, loan loss provisioning. And I think we'll continue to see that coming up now in the, ne the next round. We had that. Uh, anything else with the banks? I think I think that's big news. I think that's it. I think we're just news, still stuck same in this. Trend. Yeah, we're still stuck in this weird conflicting messages uh economy which is you get some of these survey numbers that come out and look you know better than expectations and, no, and i get... think we're on a slippery slope here i think yeah. it's yeah it's just almost there oh there's uh, one more there's one more thing keith which is yeah. uh esg is starting to uh, 
<laughs> the reality, the sun is shining on ESG and it's not looking so hot. Uh, they did a survey in 2022. Um, you know, the people basically asked why uh, they were over ESG. The top reason given was that performance was more important. <laughs> Which is the, the most obvious thing ever, basically. And then, and as far and greenwashing in 2021, only 40% of investors said they were not convinced by ESG claims. That number is now up at two thirds of, of the claims on ESG, or sorry, the claims these funds make with respect to ESG. So this is something I think we were very early to. We called BS on this, and I'm happy to see that finally the market's sort of coming around. Uh, we'll see what happens. Maybe Which it'll change. But gets to the the last point of this conversation is uh, Alberta threatening to pull out of the Canada Pension Plan. What yeah, we, uh... and it's it's not last because it's not important. I, I think it's a, it's a great conversation. My my quick two cents, and you know everyone has very strong feelings about Alberta and, and this for some reason. But, uh, you know, I, I might be wrong with the facts, but it's my understanding Alberta is a net contributor more than anyone else in Canada, I would imagine. And for whatever reason, they've been poked an, a long enough over the years by by Ottawa. And they, they see a brighter future by just simply yanking out their assets and you know, starting on their own. I, I know uh, the prime minister's office wrote a, a sternly worded letter Tell them that it would create chaos and confusion for all of Canadians. Um, you know that that's just it, it's not right. I, just from a political perspective, if the Alberta yanks out their assets and their liabilities, resulting in liabilities they have it. The the reason the rest of Canada will be upset because now all of a sudden we have to contribute more because you know they they were the big guys on the block. But these are the big moves that are taking place. I mean, a, a lot of. You know, that the earth is, is shifting underneath us financially. Uh, this pendulum has been swinging pretty hard from one side to the other from a political and social perspective. So reactions like this, you know, it, it should not be unexpected. And uh, I, I think, well, I, I don't know if it could happen, truthfully. I think there's so many. Imagine the army of lawyers involved with, with this. If I mean, try to do it. Yeah, I mean, it gets to, to, the, to the polling numbers, um, which, you know, for the Liberal Party, uh, is just downright horrible um, pretty much on any poll right now, which is surprising. A lot of people, even uh, staunch liberal supporters are just, um, you know, it's it's crazy just to see the numbers that have changed. So anyways, we're not going to get too much into the politics, but I think that all well, kind of ties. If the assets it. do leave, you know, the kind of pension plan, they move into Alberta. Um, Icecap will be opening an Alberta-based <laughs> head office <laughs> up in Canmore, most likely. But uh, it, it is it is interesting. One last comment on the ESG stuff. You know, everyone went so head on into it on day one because they want to make the world green and beautiful and, and all that. And the, the banks just see profits with this. That's what it's all about. They 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 see the, the P and not the L and they go. I know like even small investment firms, they have people dedicated to just the ESG analyst, right? And then all of a sudden that wave is over and this will be pushed under the rug. Like in three, five years from now, no one will be keeping ESG scores anymore. Totally agree. And Rich, totally you agree. were right with it on, <laughs> on day one. Uh, you got It's that. just marketing, folks. I, we've worked in finance long enough to see snake oil when, <laughs> I mean, we've gotten some stuff wrong, but my God, did we get this one right? <laughs> it's bogus. Anyways, we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Kudos, kudos to you, Brad. Okay, Keith, you football. Got it. Yeah, football. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last week we were we were wrong. Uh, you know, any given Sunday happened, but this week is different. Monday night football. Uh, it, 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 you know, there's no wind and rain and all that. It's in a, one of the most beautiful stadiums in the league. If you ever get a chance to go to Minnesota, uh, I there are some injuries involved. Minnesota's record is not that good this year. However, they've had some really bad luck. Even statistically, you're, you're able to see it. Uh, so I think this would be a bit tighter. But if the 49ers scoring 24. It could be more if the injuries are not there, but 24 and Minnesota gets gets a late uh, touchdown with a convert on it. They have 16 in total. So 24-16 with a garbage time score. It's, it's amazing. You Vikings. never you never you never predict a bad outcome. You're like one of those uh, big <laughs> bank economists. Well, you know, last week was a field goal got pushed wide, but this it, it'll come. They, they got a the game of the year is coming up on December third or fifth, I think it is. It'll be in Philadelphia between okay. uh, the 49ers. My, yeah. my my predictions on the Looney Hour, I just want to remind everybody that I'm 1-0 uh, because I predicted the 49ers to lose last week. <laughs> and I am, did. Now, it's true. I, di- I am retiring from all future prognostications with an undefeated record. So there you go, Keith. I'll leave it up to you. All right. There you go. Cool. Never go broke taking profits. Um, <laughs> on that note... Um, it's a good place to end it. Our Toronto event is, is, is again confirmed for November the 30th. We are looking for another sponsor, maybe two, maybe two. Um, so send us an email if there's any interest there whatsoever. Um, November 30th tickets are not yet on sale, but we're going to release them first and foremost to people that are on our newsletter uh, and that have attended past events. And then we'll be available to the rest of the audience here. Uh, probably, probably next week. So, uh, stay tuned for that, but as always, we appreciate the support and we'll see you next week.